has not bred contempt. That even though we have read many times of our Lord's sufferings in Gethsemane, we pray that the Holy Spirit will open our eyes afresh to the Word. It's a longish passage, verses 36 through 46. I'm going to read the entirety of it. I'd like to ask Mark Freitag to pray for the ministry of the Word this morning. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be aggrieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, thy will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Let us pray. Our Father, we do indeed ask that you would uh, allow us to look at this passage afresh. Have you ever found yourself singing a hymn that you've sung many times before and noticing a phrase within it that all of a sudden seems fresh? Or maybe more often, have you ever noticed yourself singing a hymn and not really paying attention to the words that you're singing? When we do something frequently, uh, we do tend to grow dull. And we tend to do it without thinking. And uh, perhaps that is nowhere more true than um, when we sing. 
Uh, I joke with my children that the one song from my childhood that I still remember every single verse is Don McLean's American Pie, which makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. He was asked what the song meant, and his answer was, it means I never have to work again if I don't want to. Now, how can I remember the words of such a ridiculous song and yet sing praises to the glory of God and grow dull in the words that I'm singing? But that's the f nature of fallen man and our sluggish mind, as Mark prayed, the sleep that has come over our minds. At the Passover Seder, it was the tradition uh, for the Jews to sing the psalms known as the Hallel, praise, praise to God, Hallel. And these psalms, some begin the list at Psalm 113, others 114. They go through Psalm 118. If Jesus had led his disciples in the traditional liturgy, then the psalm that we read, the hymn that he read, that we read in verse 30, that they sang before departing to the Mount of Olives was, Mount of Olives was quite likely Psalm 118. And in that psalm we read these verses. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. I wonder if those words meant anything to the disciples that night. I'm sure that they meant a great deal to Jesus. The fulfillment of this psalm and of so many other prophecies was occurring that very night. We've already seen in the Passover meal the transition between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, between the Passover Seder and the Lord's Supper. And now we come to the Garden, the Mount of Olives, a place that Jesus frequented apparently quite often because we read elsewhere that Judas was aware of it and knew that that was the best place to lead those who would arrest Jesus and carry him off in the night where there would be no danger of crowds gathering around and protecting this rabbi from Galilee. The place is called Gethsemane which means oil press, which seems appropriate. We read the word garden and we think of our own gardens and we think of the flowers that we plant there or perhaps we think of a formal garden in the, in the English manner, but none of those words really are appropriate to first century Judea. A garden at that time might have been a grove of trees, probably um, fig or olive, and there may have been at one time a press there, kind of a community place where people came to press their olives to extract the oil. It may still have been there, and from whence it would have gotten the name Gethsemane. It may also have been one of those infamous high places. We are on the Mount of Olives. We are above Jerusalem. We are at a place where uh, poles would have been erected to the goddess Ashtoreth or altars to Baal. Things would have been done in these high places that were an abomination to the Lord Jehovah. And we read words against these places by the prophets Jeremiah and Isaiah. Be that as it may, if this may have been a high place, it is now sanctified by our Lord's sweat, which we are told was as drops of blood. We're in a garden We were in a garden 
earlier, at the beginning of the Bible, the beginning of our history. We were in another garden. We were with another Adam, because we are told in the New Testament that our Lord Jesus Christ is the last Adam. And I think that all of these things that we read are, are meant to take our mind back and make connections between the first Adam and the last Adam, the first garden and this garden. In the first garden we heard, not in these words, but the, the basic attitude, not thy will, but mine be done. And here we hear those famous words, not my will, but thine be done. Now that phrase that we read several times, especially in verse 39, not as I will, but as thou wilt. We're familiar with those. And they are, I would submit to you, much deeper than we realize when we think of the will of the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, and the perfect Son of Man. In fact, those, those words are so full of meaning that I'm not going to talk about them today. And Lord willing, next week we will, we will focus on just that phrase, not my will, but thine be done. Today, however, I want to look at this entire event at Gethsemane in terms of its place in God's redemptive history, but in particular, as we've been talking about this whole section of the latter chapters of Matthew, its context in Jesus' own passion, his own suffering, and what part, what is going on in this passage? How do we understand it? How do we read it? Matthew, Mark, and Luke all agree as they portray Jesus' time at Gethsemane that it was one of great and intense anguish. There aren't enough adjectives. Luke says, And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. The writer of Hebrews, we believe, alludes to this time of Jesus in Gethsemane when in chapter 5 he writes, In the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And from the Hallel that we've already quoted, we read, The cords of death encompassed me, and the terrors of Sheol came upon me. I found distress and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, save my life. Are these not the words of Jesus? We're only told what he said. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass for me. Yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. But we, we know that his initial time of prayer lasted apparently an hour. That he was with the Lord in that grove of Gethsemane. He was praying to his father for a long time. Do we doubt that his words sounded very much like those of the psalmist? The cords of death have encompassed me, and the terrors of Sheol have come upon me. I found distress and sorrow, sweat dropping as blood from his body. We don't know what it must have been like for our Lord but what we have been told, we need to allow to, to sink in. To realize that he was being torn apart. 
that he was being put, as it were, on a rack. He was being tormented. He was distressed and full of sorrow. He was in anguish. The prophecies and the gospel narratives all focus our attention on the intensity of Jesus' sufferings in Gethsemane. And this is important. Compared to the intensity of what he suffered in Gethsemane, the physical abuses that he was about to suffer at the hands of the Jews and the Romans elicit not so much as a whimper from his voice. Compare the man who comes out of Gethsemane to the man who went in. The man who says, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. To the man who said to Pilate, it is as you say. I am a king. And if it were appropriate to the will of the Father, I could call upon legions of angels, and I would not be given into your hand. To say to the Roman procurator, you have no authority but that which is given to you. Compared to the man even at the end of this evening, when the soldiers come into the garden and say, and he says, who are you looking for? Jesus the Nazarene, I am he. And they all fall down. Gethsemane is a place of pressing, an oil press. When we read in Isaiah that it pleased the Lord to crush him, here it is. Here's the crushing. Because when he walks from this place, there's not a whimper. There's nothing but strength and purpose and power. Yes, he's going, to get, he's going to Golgotha. He's going to the cross. But he goes to the cross willingly. No man takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own will. And he goes to the cross powerfully. You never hear him so much as, as, as cry out. Though he was hit with lashes, though he was punched with fists, though thorns were stabbed into his head, he was strong. But in Gethsemane, we witness the Lord of glory falling apart, being crushed as an olive. His life being pressed out of him. Was Jesus afraid to die? I ask that question only because in my studies I've encountered sad Sad comparisons by ignorant men of Jesus in Gethsemane and others in history who have boldly gone to their death without any instance or indication of fear. And these ignorant men who profess to be Christians in their commentaries tell us that, that Jesus was weak and that, it, that his weakness was somehow beautiful, but that his, his approach to death could not even be compared to that of the gladiator in the Roman Colosseum. Was Jesus afraid to die? Well, one only needs to read the rest of the narrative and behold his poise and his control of the entire situation to understand that he was not afraid to die. He says that my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death he knows what's coming. He knows that the prince of this world is coming upon him. 
He knows that he would be handed over. He's already told his disciples that he would be raised up, indicating the manner in which he would die. That wasn't what he was afraid of. No one, no man, ever had more reason to recoil from death than Jesus Christ, except perhaps the first Adam. Death is the wage of sin. Death is not our natural end. It's our enemy. And we all naturally recoil from death, though we may be able to convince ourselves because of its inevitability to not be afraid and to face it manfully and bravely. But there was never a man born who could righteously and justly recoil from death more so than Jesus who was without sin. Death had no hold on him. Death had no power over him. No power unless he was granted, it was granted that power by him. Klaus Schilder says, one would need to have been in hell for some time in order to understand what it is that is tearing Jesus apart in the garden. And that phrase, that statement by Schilder, made me think of the Roman Catholic fiction of purgatory. And their notion that thousands and even ten thousands of years of the burning fires of purgatory would be sufficient to purge our sins. Proving that they think too little of God and His holiness. And they think, they think far too little of Jesus Christ's suffering in Gethsemane. How many years would it take in purgatory for us to be purged of our sin? Of one offense against the holy God, an eternally holy God? Jonathan Edwards calculated that it would take infinity because the punishment must fit the crime. So the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory is just frankly too short. It is, in fact, the doctrine of hell. And you have two places of pressing, hell and Gethsemane. One for the redeemed and one for the reprobate. So what's going on here? Jesus, you're not afraid of death. You know it is the will of the Father. You've already said, for this purpose I have come into the world, referring to your death. Why the torment? Well, I find the answer in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Did Adam, the first Adam, did he have this kind of reaction? When sin came upon him in temptation in the first garden, did he sweat drops of blood? No. We read of Eve, she gave also to the husband with her, and he did eat. Willingly, gladly, without the least indication of any anguish in his soul, a man who was created perfect, who had never sinned, embraced sin without a fight. But not in this garden. We may never be able to understand, and I don't think we will, how sin found a place in the heart of the first Adam. But it did. And we may never be able to understand, and I don't think we will, 
how intensely sin tried to find a place in the heart of the second Adam. But it didn't. What the first Adam was supposed to do, the second Adam did. And he resisted the devil, even to the point of death. But there's one thing, I think, that Jesus recoiled from with even greater anguish than from sin. And that was from the displeasure of his Father. And this we also read in the Hallel. My God, or in the Psalms, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What was it that he was praying? My Father, if it's possible that this cup may pass from me, my Father, if it may be that your will can be done without what is about to happen happening, let it be that way. And that wasn't his death, and it wasn't even his, his self-imputation of our sins. As horrible as those things must to have been to Jesus, as foreign to his nature as that they were, there was going to be a breach and the Father was going to turn away his face from his Son. And the object of eternal love would become the object of unmitigated wrath. And we might even say that God, for a time, would hate his beloved Son. Now those are harsh words. But the scripture teaches us that that's exactly what happened. Because he became sin. Paul's very careful in his wording. He didn't sin, perish that thought, nor did he simply take on sin as if it were a burden he was carrying on our behalf. He became it. And then put himself on the cross and withstood the full wrath of God for all those for whom he became. And this is the pressing of Gethsemane that we read about. And I don't think Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I think they probably, they could not even come up with the words to describe the indescribable anguish of the eternal Son of God and the perfect Son of Man becoming sin on our behalf. This the Son, our mediator, would do willingly. But it's too much to ask that he do it calmly or dispassionately. It's too much to ask that he would go to this death the way heroes have gone to their death in our history. It's too much for us to ask that he not consider the ramifications of what it was he was doing and that we not consider the anguish and the passion of his soul as he was becoming sin in Gethsemane as that cup of God's wrath was set before him and he was embracing it he could not do that calmly he could not do that dispassionately without emotion this was tearing his soul apart. We read in Luke that an angel of heaven came to strengthen him. 
He made it through, obviously. And we know the end of the story. We know that he's going to make it through Golgotha and he's going to make it through the tomb and he's going to rise from the dead and he's going to ascend to sit at the right hand of majesty ever living to make intercession for us. We know that Pentecost is going to come and the Spirit of God is going to be poured out. We know all those things. And we like to think that Jesus knew all those things too in Gethsemane. But then we read other passages where Jesus says basically... I don't know. The Father knows. We don't know. We can't know what went on in Jesus' mind in Gethsemane. But it is a passage that we should take to heart. But what do we do with it? In the Reformed tradition, in homiletics, we are taught in seminary that we are to make application in every sermon. And the application of our sermons in homiletics and seminary was a major factor in the grade that we got, which I always considered to be an abomination, as David Martin Lloyd-Jones called it. So what do we do with this? How do we apply? And that, that tendency to want to make application of everything, is it suits our minds, especially here in the United States, where we always think, well, what do I do with this? What's the practical, the practical application? Well, you know, where does the rubber meet the road? And, you know, phrases like that. What do I do with this? How do we make application of Gethsemane? I remember years ago when we were living in Oklahoma, there was a, a televangelist um, ministry in Texas Developed, he wrote a book and he developed a whole ministry. It was called Could You Not Tarry One Hour? Anybody here have heard of that? Could You Not Tarry One Hour? And his takeaway from Gethsemane was that the, um, the disciples fell asleep. And they could not, Jesus says in the King James, could you not tarry one hour? And so the focus was in getting believers to pray for an hour a day. Could you not tarry one hour? It was a rough one for me. As the poster child of ADHD, I don't do anything for one straight 60-minute period. I get to about minute 23, and either I got to get up or I'm asleep. All right? So we went through this. I think I might have made it to minute 34 one time with a lot of coffee. But I will confess to all present, I could not tarry one hour. And to think that that is the message from Gethsemane is rather silly. Because after Pentecost, these men who fell asleep at Gethsemane did not fall asleep. They tarried an hour, and two hours, and through the night. Now that's not the point. I may, you, know, you may never have heard that before, and I don't want to revive it, believe me. How do I apply it now? Well... Obviously, it has to do with the submission to God's will, right? It's all in that verse, not my will, but thine be done. There's the application that we, we should all be submitting our wills to the will of the Father, as if our wills are even remotely related to the will of the perfect Son of Man. That's not the application. You see, we have this tendency to take famous place names 
and to make them part of our life's experience. Oh, he met his Waterloo there. Yeah, oh, he crossed the Rubicon on that one. Yeah, we, we do that. We, uh, we have you know, Damascus Road experiences, right? And the thing about Waterloo and the thing about the Rubicon and the thing about Damascus Road is, in fact, they can be repeated. If you suffer a complete failure that pretty much wipes you out and all your prospects and you end up in a rock in the Atlantic, that's your Waterloo, folks. If God arrests you in a dramatic way in the midst of drug abuse or, or theft or adultery and fornication and you see the light of salvation in Jesus Christ, hey, call it a Damascus Road experience all you want, but there's only one Gethsemane and there's only one Golgotha. We don't have Gethsemanes, folks, because we are not the sinless son of God and man. We are not becoming sin because we are sinners. That's what our Adam did for us. Gethsemane is not to be applied. It's to be adored. I would submit to you that the Reformed doctrine of homiletics is just flat wrong. That there are some passages of Scripture that aren't meant to be applied. They're just simply meant to be adored. And we're supposed to just say, Oh my God, what you have done for us. In Gethsemane, to sit and watch the Lord of glory in the oil press, being crushed by the Father who loved him before the foundation of the world, seeing his sweat squeezed out of his soul like drops of blood for me, for you, becoming sin, facing the devil, ah, nothing. Herod, Pilate, Herod, he must have laughed inside of Herod. Herod was a joke. Pilate, the powerful Roman emperor's representative, quaking in fear over this Jewish rabbi and wanting to have nothing to do with him. The Lord of glory, Gethsemane, should be whispered. Hardly even spoken. Gethsemane is our garden. It's been made our garden. It's been sanctified as our garden by our Lord, our mediator, our champion, who grasped the chalice of God's wrath with both hands and drained it to the very dregs. He would not die until Golgotha, but in a very meaningful sense of the word, he died here at Gethsemane. What it cost him to do this, we will never comprehend. But the wounds of Golgotha, the piercing of his hands and his feet and of his side, were mere scratches compared to the wounds of Gethsemane. Let us pray. Our Father, we do seek only to adore you. And I pray that the name of Gethsemane would never be cheapened, that never be prostrated, that never be applied to any meaningless struggle that we may endure. 
but that it would forever be whispered in adoration and awe for the pressing of our Lord that night in which he became sin on our behalf. We glory in Gethsemane as we glory in Golgotha. We do not apply them. They belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and only to him. And they belong to us only through him. They are ours because of him. And I pray that we might find rest in Gethsemane and peace with God, stability, and love because of what you were pleased to do to your son that you might not have to do it to me. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please rise for the benediction this morning from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. The doxology. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.